The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Andrew Basevich will talk about our very long war, going back at least to the 60s, and about the relative insignificance of Donald Trump. But first, teaching assistants and other grad student employees at the University of California won their strike. What does that mean for other schools in other union organizing campaigns? Nelson Lichtenstein will comment in a minute. The UC strike is over with a historic victory for 48,000 grad student employees and postdocs represented by the UAW. Their five-week strike was the largest labor action of academic workers in history and the biggest strike in the country last year. The reverberations will be felt for months and maybe years to come, helping energize the surge of union activism that could reshape not only American higher education, but other sectors of the economy as well. For comment, we turn once again to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books, including the definitive history of the UAW, titled Walter Ruther, the Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. He also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Descent, and The Guardian. We reached him today in Berkeley. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, remind us what the TAs and tutors and others won at the end of fall quarter. What was in the contract that they voted for? The uh, postdocs and, and some academic researchers that settled the contract in early December, and they won substantial wage increases. We're talking about, you know, a 40, uh, 30, 40, and 50 percent uh, over a, a five-year period for these postdocs and, and older uh, and more permanent workers uh, uh, in the labs and such. Then the, the, the teaching assistants and tutors and read, readers and, and uh, other kind of graduate student workers continued on strike. And, you know, there was brought in a mediator. Uh, and then I think the, the governor intervened to a degree and others. And then they, they won a uh, really a substantial wage increase of over two, only two and a half years. Really, we're talking about 50 to 60 percent, depending on the experience of the student, of students, sometimes even more, which is a, a tremendous amount given the, the short amount of time. The uh, University of California, as a result of the strike, they, they twice improved their, their offer, and uh, the final offer really, for example, um, uh, ends up with a motion to the teaching assistants receiving so get $34,000 a year at least, and some will get more with more experience. There's a kind of step system. So some of them make 36, 38, even more uh, by the end of two and a half years. And actually the first year, they're going to get, uh, beginning in three months, they'll get seven and a half percent. And then another three months after that, another actually 16%. So there's a big jump right away well, within a, several months. So that's, that's quite uh, substantial. It really, it, it's, um, how should I put this? It's qualitatively different. Uh, I'll just give you an example. In, in the, the UC, in one of its offers was, oh, okay, we'll give you a 3.5% increase in the third year. That would be like, I think, 2024. Then they improved that to, to 16%. <laughs> and I asked a veteran unionist uh, the other day, I said, have you ever heard of that where, where a company, uh, they, they, they move from 3.5% to 16% in one? No, no, it, it, maybe they'll go to 7%. But anyway, it was a, it was a substan substantial wage increase. There was some opposition. There's some things that, that uh, the, the, some of the grad students didn't like, uh, for example, or no um, uh, relief really to foreign students have to pay out-of-state tuition. And I was talking to some uh, 
people at Berkeley here just the other day, and, and the foreign students, you know, in the sciences were much more active in this strike than ever before. You know, usually they're, you know, they come in, they're, they're, you know, their, their language skills aren't so great and they're, they're going to go back. But in this case, they were very active. So that was a big issue. And then, of course, there's also some of the grad students at um, Berkeley and UCLA got, got, got somewhat more money than others. So, so it's a very good settlement. So we're interested in the implications of this historic victory for other campuses, other universities, and other workplaces of all kinds. The UCTAs had one tremendous advantage. They worked for the state of California. Explain why that was so important. Yes, they, they, first of all, there, well, there's a, a law uh, which provides that public employees in the state of California and, and a number of other states like New York and Massachusetts, northern states generally, uh, can, you know, uh, legitimately uh, have a union, have elections, uh, bargain, uh, and then an agreement. And, I mean, this was not the first agreement that the grad students had, had signed with, the, with UC, although by far a, a very different and, and much better agreement. So, so yes, yeah, so that public employees, and that's, that's, uh, that's very important. Unlike, for example, the Starbucks baristas, who, who basically, you know, they, they've, they've been very active, but, but they don't have a contract. It's been a year since they, the beginning, and they, and they, they don't have a contract, and, and right now they aren't, you know, it doesn't look like they're going to get a contract. There's a stalling tactic. The University of California couldn't, couldn't do that, and, they, and really they couldn't fire any of the, the TAs as well. So, the, so it, it was a better uh, system than in, in most of the private sector. And let's also note for other state universities where TAs are organizing, California is, has complete democratic control. The unions have a lot of power in the state legislature. And second, California is an immensely wealthy state. So in principle, they can afford big raises. Well, that's true. Uh, that is true. And, and I think that, that uh, despite the various uh, uh, cries that uh, of a, of sort of our budget won't allow it, the fact is that there is a budget surplus, et cetera. But, John, I wouldn't emphasize that quite so much that, oh, California is a peculiar place. I mean, I, and I think that the ripple effects of this uh, strike and this victory are going to be felt in both public and private uh, institutions uh, um, uh, that, that employ uh, the same sort of workers. Let's talk about how private institutions are different. They are subject to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, which has rules about what it takes to organize a union. Let's just note that the first step for other campuses, especially on private universities, is not a strike. The first step is winning an NLRB election. And what does that take? Well, right. And for, for private entities, everything from General Motors to, to Harvard University, they're not governed by a state law. They're governed by the 1935 Wagner Act, which set up the National Labor Relations Board, which can hold an election. And what has happened up to just now, up to recently, was that many of the Ivy League schools and the, you know, other, other private schools, Yale and Harvard and Columbia and et cetera, were resisting, resisting unionization of their teaching assistants and, uh, and others as well, and were really kind of playing pretty hardball. For example, I just had a wonderful conversation with the, the former head of the Harvard Graduate Students Union, Brandon Marcella, who um, 
is just got himself elected uh, uh, head of Region Nine of the UAW. This is he'll be on the executive board. I mean, this wow. is like a twenty-eight year old, twenty-eight year old history graduate student who who uh, well, he was he, he has dropped out. He, he didn't get his PhD, but he's very well liked by not just the grad students but other other kind of people in in New England and New York City. That's the and he's on the executive board. So Harvard has sort of caved and then. I, I think uh, at Columbia, and so many of these sort of high-profile private schools have sort of reluctantly, okay, we'll recognize the the the, the union, and then I think this UC strike is going to be a big spur to that as well. These schools, which according to the LA Times, have filed for NLRB elections, include the University of Southern California. Northwestern, Yale, Johns Hopkins, the University of Chicago, Boston University, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Caltech plans to kick off its organizing campaign this month. So a lot is going to be happening in the coming months, and there's also drives underway at semi, what should we call them, semi-academic institutions like the Brookings Institution, the National right. Institutes right. of Health. They're sort of, some are public, some are private. There too, workers, intellectual workers are, are organizing. Yeah. And grad students are winning big increases in financial support without organizing unions or going on strike. At the University of Washington, Campus negotiators in November made an opening offer to raise the minimum pay for postdocs from 54000 to 65000 And Caltech announced last month that it would increase grad student stipends from 38000 this year to 45000 next year. Do you think this has anything to do with the labor action in the University of California? Yes, and I think it has everything to do with it. I think it's a classic instance in which a, a major institution, uh, after a battle, and it was a hard-fought battle, offers substantial uh, concessions and recognition, of course, to a substantial body of, of workers. And then everyone else in academia, you know, you don't compete exactly like Ford and Chrysler and, and, and General Motors do. But nevertheless, there's a kind of competition, kind of follow the leader. And when you have an academia, Harvard and UC both recognizing a union and offering higher, uh, much higher pay, you know, this sets the standard. And you're right, John, not just academia, not just the grad students, but, but wherever you find, you know, well-educated, but underpaid, you know, people doing work of that sort, like museums and research institutes and things of that sort all over the country. I mean, it's just follow the leader. And it's reminiscent of what happened when other when when you had union upsurges like in the late 30s or the or the or the early 70s with municipal employees when managers and 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 officials and, and would say hey look what's happening over there we better get ahead of this because we don't want we don't want chaos or strike or whatever in some cases they're 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 anxious to give a wage increase so as to avoid unionization you don't need a union which we've already given you the wage increase yeah. this is a, a, a salutary dynamic we haven't seen for many years. Yeah. Frankly, usually it was the other way around in the private sector. Oh, we're cutting your wages. We're cutting your health care. We're cutting your pay. Okay. And then everyone else did the same thing. Well, now, it's the, now we have the, other, the opposite direction. So that's a good thing. The mainstream media have mostly looked at the consequences of the UC strike for other universities. But in our past conversation, you have mentioned that the lesson here Organize a union, go on strike, get 50% pay increase, applies 
to a lot of places other than universities. I wonder what sectors you think might might be next. Well, right, this whole strata of, of sort of young, uh, well-educated people, I mean, that we, that we can argue about why that's the case, but that is the case right now. Everything from newsrooms to to Silicon Valley gamers to, and, and research institutes, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they, you know, they, they, they were kind of underpaid and uh, unionism, unionism was resisted. You know, I think that's now kind of almost not exactly a breakthrough, but clearly that, that strata is in motion. And I mean, obviously, many reasons for that, the pandemic and inflation, but it's clearly in motion. And, and you know, this is the way consciousness is transformed. If say, well, they did it over there at Berkeley and, and, and we can do it here in the, where, wherever it is, at, including the University of Virginia, where I spent 10 years teaching, which is in a right to work state and, you know, in a kind of classically paternalistic institution. But I, I, there's some noises going on there as well. So uh, I think this is a, um, a society wide, at least for a strata, a certain strata of of workers um, uh, are in motion right now, and I think this is a very good thing. And I would this would apply, by the way, uh, it does apply to the to kind of the well-educated sort of retail sector, the people who work in Apple, the people who work at REI, and the baristas, uh, uh, you know, around. Uh, it, it has an impact there as well. So I think that uh, you know you can point to that. You can you can. I, I, I at this meeting I was at yesterday uh, uh, with some of the grad students, and and you know like the Cal State people. Hey. Berkeley did it. We could do it, too. You know, so it, I think that's what's happening. Last issue. The vote on the UC contract was far from unanimous. The TA contract carried statewide by a little more than 60 percent, and three campuses had a majority vote of no. Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, and Merced, these are smaller campuses, but they're still significant for the union. What do you make of the divided vote? I thought the vote was was just right. <laughs> in other words, like, you know, uh, not too hot, not too cold. I think, in other words, it was a, it was a substantial majority, but there's clearly a, an important minority. I think that, I, I think that I, my view, my personal view, just as an observer, the, the strike could not go on. I mean, you, you, you have to end these things at a certain point, and there was, a, and it would have been divisive and, and sort of ragged uh, as a no vote won. But, Yes, there was a, a good substantial majority, 60%, 62%, I think. But there was, a, but the minority is there. And I do think, actually, in the, in the last kind of endgame of this, of this strike, that the fact there was a strong minority, I think, was an impulse for UC um, to, to come, come forward. And it, and it augurs very well for the uh, future. So first of all, the, the minority group, the, the those who are against it, those people issued very constructive statements saying, we aren't satisfied, we don't, you know, we didn't win enough, and we're going to, you know, keep, we're, we're going to keep at it, you know, we're going to keep at it. And by the way, I should say right now as we speak, there's a very important election on the national level, level taking place inside the UAW between a uh, insurgent group and, and, and the really the, kind of the old guard, and, and that's taking place this January. So I think, and you see uh, UAW members and others around the country are, are eligible, of course, to vote in that. Really, they're gearing up, you know, for the next next round, you know, into it, only two and a half years. One of the victories of the strike was it wasn't a really long contract, like five years, which you, the University of California originally wanted. It's only really two and a half years. We're halfway through this this year. And so negotiations will begin again in, in just, you know, really two, less than two, two, year, two years, really. So I think that it was a good ending of the strike. And the leadership, the president of the UA, the 
TA local, Raphael Jamie, you know, issued a statement saying, yeah, we didn't win everything and we're going to mobilize to get better next time. So I think that, that was a good ending of, of the strike. Nelson Lichtenstein. Nelson, thanks for all your work on the UC strike for us over the last month. You've been terrific. Thank you indeed. Great to talk to you. Donald Trump's candidates in November lost those key races for senator and governor in the swing states. He's facing criminal investigations, criminal indictments, guilty verdicts on many fronts. The party leaders would love for him to disappear, but just when you think we're finished with Donald Trump, he pulls you back in again. He's declared his candidacy for 2024. He's in the headlines almost every day. What does that say about the health of our democracy and about our history over the last 50 or so years? For comment, we turn to Andrew Basevich. His new book is On Shedding an Obsolete Past, Bidding Farewell to the American Century. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me. Well, our friends are divided about Trump. Many see him as a transformational figure, paving the way for American fascism. Others view him less as a cause and more of an effect, an effect of longer term trends and developments. You've always been in the second camp and your new book opens by declaring there was no age of Trump. Please explain your basic argument here. Well, I, I think the argument begins with acknowledging that uh, the nation is in the midst of a profound crisis. I think that it manifests itself in a misguided approach to foreign policy, which has us mired in almost continuous wars, and also domestic dysfunction. It's economic in the sense that it, it, it finds expression in, in inequality. It's cultural. Uh, it's racial, it's religious. And although Trump, with a certain perverse genius, I guess, has exploited that crisis to his advantage, I don't see any real evidence to suggest that he created it. Uh, so as you said in your introduction, yeah, he's not the cause, he's the effect. Lots of people see a contrast between America after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, when a new era dawned without global superpowers threatening to destroy each other. People see a contrast between that and America after 9-11 in 2001, which resulted in a new militarization of basic U.S. policy, viewing the world as a place full of threats and dangers. So in this view, 1991 brought an opening up of hope. 9-11 brought a closing down, an era of fear, the global war on terror. But you say there's a longer pattern. There's a unity behind those apparent shifts. You call it the very long war, which you date as 1965 to 2021, beginning with the escalation in Vietnam, ending with the last Americans leaving Afghanistan a 56-year war. Please explain the very long war. Well, I mean, let me confess, that's an artificial construct. I could make the same argument, I think, of a, of a long war beginning in uh, December 1941 uh, or 1945, in the sense that impelled by World War II or 
impelled by the Cold War after World War II, the United States opted for uh, a militarized approach to policy, which marked a radical change from U.S. policy before that time. We have been an imperialistic nation. We have been an aggressive nation prior to World War II, but we were not permanently committed to the proposition of defining our identity uh, in terms of military greatness. The, the essay that you referred to, which begins the argument in 1965, more than anything else is probably a reflection of, of me. <laughs> Me too. Listen, a Me member, too. <laughs> you know, a, a, a member of the boomer generation. And as a member of the boomer generation, if I say the war, speaking to friends, the war, I'm talking about the Vietnam War. Yeah. My war, our war. Yeah. My mother would have said the war. And she, would, of course, would have been referring to World War II, in which she had participated. So, in, in, in ways that probably are difficult to justify, my worldview has a start point, a, a launch pad with the events of the 60s more broadly, not just Vietnam, but that decade. And therefore, the story I tend to tell tends to be a story that begins in the 1960s. And it's a story in which the Vietnam War tends to figure uh, as uh, exceedingly important, formative just thought experiment here. What if the United States had not intervened in Vietnam and had not responded to 9-11 by invading Afghanistan? What might have happened? You're making my head spin. <laughs> making, I'm about to explode. <laughs> Th those were both opportunities to take a different path, to take a path diverging from the concept of an American century. That is to say, diverging from the notion that the global order had to be one founded on American primacy. Arguably, potentially, we would have become a different nation. In, in neither occasion did that possibility even receive the slightest serious consideration. I mean, how long did it take George W. Bush to embark upon a global war on terrorism? defined not simply as, not simply as uh, an enterprise intended to prevent a recurrence of 9-11, but actually designed as a great crusade uh, in which the United States of America would uh, spread freedom in American style democracy uh, throughout much of the, of, of the greater Middle East. Preposterous and yet very American. And for the course of this very long war, if we had not intervened in Vietnam and not invaded Afghanistan, how might that have affected the Soviet Union and China? I must admit, as an as a old Cold Warrior, which I was in my youthful days, you and I probably would have been on opposite sides of the barricades. I think so. Uh, but in, in, in retrospect, I've never believed uh, that the United States and the Soviet Union were going to come out of World War II and be friends. I think a competitive relationship, in, in many respects, a hostile relationship, uh, probably was all but an inevitable. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we would have necessarily embarked upon uh, an arms race, doesn't necessarily mean we would have engaged in all kinds of you know, shenanigans in the underdeveloped world doesn't necessarily mean we'd, we'd have the great face-off of opposing forces 
uh, in Western Europe. But the might have been would be that, and particularly in the case of the Soviet Union, that the, the inevitable failure of the Soviet system might have actually happened earlier. I, I do believe uh, that Marxism, Leninism, as practiced in the Soviet Union, under, under the shadow of Stalinism, that that was doomed to fail. And I suspect that the architecture of the Cold War probably kept it from failing sooner, so that, a again, a more modest policy without the preoccupation with facing off against the Soviets, without the claim that we that it was a bipolar world, without the claim that this was, you know, freedom besieged, actually might have seen the collapse of communism happen sooner. But let's face it, you and I are engaged in, you know, pretty wild speculation here. One thing is for sure, we wouldn't have had 58,000 Americans killed in Vietnam. Yes. And where exactly does Trump fit into this history? As I recall, he ran in 2016 as a critic of American intervention around the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the America First uh, theme was a rejection of American globalism that dated from the immediate aftermath of World War II. I've always believed that he quite literally uh, didn't know what he was saying. Uh, that that he is a historically ignorant man who was probably handed the phrase in a three by five card by some aide and was told, use this in your speech. I'm being a little sarcastic, but but not that not that that much really. As president, his his ignorance, his his lack of a work ethic, he was a lazy man. Yeah. I remember when the stories came out of the examining his schedule for the day and the hours where he basically was unscheduled and it was leaked from the White House that he was sitting in sitting in the Oval Office watching TV by himself. It was called executive time on the president's exactly calendar. Right. Exactly right. So in, in an odd sense, the, the United States was kind of on autopilot for four years. He did damaging things. He was not completely passive. And you know, and you could also say there were a few things that came out of the administration that were actually good. I don't know. I mean, some people would say that. Some people would say that it was about time uh, that the uh, embassy uh, in Israel moved to Jerusalem, given that that's the capital of the country. But I, I have always believed uh, that, as ill-intentioned as he is, that his impact is quite limited, and that his legacy, I think, is like to be likely to be trivial. Hard to say that or see that today when once again he's potentially a, a serious candidate for the presidency. But I think that 30 years from now, when we have a certain critical distance from the period that we're now living through, and we try to figure out what imparted to that period, its characteristics, I don't think that the shenanigans of Donald Trump is going to figure as a very important cause. You open your new book, with a quote from famous quote from George Packer, who wrote on election night in 2020, we are two countries. Of course, he wrote as a liberal, so he meant one was bigoted and ignorant and anti-democratic, and the other was tolerant and enlightened. And then you write, 
four years of relentless obsessions about Donald Trump culminated in this sort of judgment, which you call too convenient by half. Please explain. You don't think that we are two countries today? Oh, I do. Well, I mean, maybe we're 10 countries in the sense that uh, the divisions are profound. The level of animosity uh, between different camps but it's too easy to say it's a left-right split. It seems to me for, for a nation to be a nation and for a nation to, to function, to be able to recognize and take on its problems re- requires a certain basic sense of unity, cohesion. And I don't think that exists. Maybe I'm overstating it too, but uh, the divisions are profound. I must say, I see the Biden administration as kind of a placeholder that this administration either lacks the, the, the wit or the capacity to address those divisions in a meaningful way. I, I certainly think that President Biden is on balance a man of goodwill, but I don't know that he possesses the necessary insight uh, to do what needs to be done. I mean, I pay attention mostly to matters of foreign policy. What we get from him uh, and his administration is this notion that uh, we're engaged in this great cosmic struggle between uh, democracy and authoritarianism. There's the good guys led by us, and there's, there's the bad guys, and that's, uh, that's China and, and Russia. And I just find that to be too simplistic. I think I understand why they frame it that way, because it's a framing that does recall the, the operative paradigms of the 20th century. Us against the fascists in World War II, us against the communists after World War II. Let me just add, us against the terrorists after and then us 9-11. Against, us against the terrorists. And there, and there is a certain value, I think, in, in framing things that way. But it's, at the end of the day, it's not accurate. I mean, it doesn't describe the world. And in particular, I think, you know, that, that us against them presumes that whatever the conflict is about, the us will, will prevail. And when the us, when we prevail, that once again, American primacy will be restored. And, you know, we're, we're back into the age of the indispensable nation. We're back in the age of, you know, we're number one. I don't think that's helpful in the present moment. Andrew Basevich. You can read him at The Nation and at Tom Dispatch. His new book is On Shedding an Obsolete Past, Bidding Farewell to the American Century. Andrew Basevich, thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks very much. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>